coming up on this week's episode of TechSnub, how Groupon made the switch to FreeBSD and why researchers extract keys from a hardware module and Intel's got some CPU-backed malware protection. Then it's feedback and a rockin' roundup on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 232 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 3rd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. I am looking forward to today's episode. We're going to get into it. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll explain why a little bit, but I thought we should probably start with our top story this week. Because, Alan, I happen to know that as long as I have my keys stored away in a hardware device, I am never going to be vulnerable because I make sure my physical security is top-notch. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, what is our first story this week? Uh, so, uh, researchers have managed to extract uh, the private keys... Uh, that were stored in the uh, Jamalto SafeNet Luna HSM, or Hardware Security Module. Ah, oh, dang it. And this is it. The attack allows remote authenticated users to bypass intended key export restrictions by leveraging the crypto user or crypto officer access to the HSM device. Uh, so an HSM, or Hardware Security Module, is basically a dedicated device, usually either like a PCI card or a completely separate appliance, mm-hmm. uh, that's used to store, safely store private encryption keys, either for symmetric or asymmetric encryption. Um, and they usually have some kind of uh, crypto processing built into them as well. So the general idea is rather than, you know, the, the encryption keys for your business or whatever just sitting on your computer where someone could steal them uh, or use them or whatever, they're stored in this separate device that has very strict access control. And if you want to say, say it's... Um, your root certificate for Active Directory or something. If you want to sign something with that certificate, you basically feed the certificate into the HSM, it signs it with the private key and then gives you back the result, and you never had access to the private key the whole time. Right? So that is the way they're supposed to work is basically by preventing anyone except for the security officer from Mm -hmm. having access to the private key uh, but still letting people use the key for things, just mm-hmm. without ever actually being able to touch the key. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, the idea is that the user never has to have access to the keys. And this, you know, all her, uh, certificate authorities that do like SSL all use these devices. Not, not necessarily this particular one that has the vulnerability, but an HSM specifically designed for dealing with this. Yeah. So that, you know, we don't have to have a whole bunch of people that work at these... Uh, certificate authorities that have access to the private keys, for the, which are like securing the whole internet, right? Right. Yep. Makes you sense. Get one government spy, and they can do whatever they want. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so this way, the worst that if someone that broke in, the worst they could do is sign a certificate, which we could then later revoke. Whereas if they got access to the actual crypto key, they could do whatever they want, and we wouldn't know. Uh, HSMs may also uh, possess controls that prevent. Uh, that provide tamper evidence such as logging and alerting. So they automatically log every time a certificate gets signed or alert if too many certificates get signed in too short a time or something. And they're also tamper resistant. Some of them will go so far as to delete their keys if they detect somebody trying to tamper with the device. 
So if you're trying to break in and steal the, the cryptographic keys, they'll actually just erase them and lose them or you know, have to be restored from a backup rather than the potential that they get leaked. Uh, but these researchers have found a flaw in these particular HSM devices. Surprise! So uh, in order to make these devices semi-standard, they follow a, uh, a specification called PKCS number 11, okay. which is a very complex standard with dozens of different APIs and a wide range of cryptographic operations, which they call mechanisms, for everything from encrypting to random number generation and key derivation and all that kind of stuff. The SafeNet vulnerability involves the key derivation mechanisms. These are used to create a cryptographic key as a function of another key. So basically, you take uh, an encryption key, do something to it, and use that as the key for the next thing. Okay. And in a strong key derivation algorithm, the idea is that even if somebody breaks that second-level key, they can't use that to then figure out what the first-level key was. Okay. Uh, So, you know, this is how... Uh, all those pa- uh, password encryption things we talk about use, right? It's basically you're going to take the original password and then hash it and then hash it and mix stuff in. And from the end thing, you can never tell what the original password is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also they have a Bitcoin example even. Hmm. Uh, for example, the BIP-32 for Bitcoin proposes uh, the notation of a hierarchical deterministic wallets where a family of Bitcoin addresses are derived from a single seed secret. Uh, designed properly, key derivation provides uh, such an amplification effect where you can take one secret key and make a whole bunch of keys out of it. Okay. Uh, and if it's designed property, or properly, then even if the derived key is compromised, even if somebody manages to get the second-level key, uh, the damage is limited to that key. They can't uh, use that information and then figure out what the original key was. Right? They can't work their way backwards to the seed. However, if it's designed improperly, the derived key uh, has a simple relationship to the original secret and leaks information about it, which is the problem. Right? And this is what's called related, cre- uh, related key uh, cryptanalysis. It's a very specific branch of these types of attacks. And basically, because we know how certain things are, are done, we can figure out, all right, so we have this key, and we know this is the operation that was done to get from the original key and work backwards. Uh, that's not supposed to be possible, but you know, when people make mistakes, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. going to be... Uh, as it turns out, uh, with the SafeNet HSMs, we don't have to dig very deep into cryptanalysis results to actually find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two uh, mechanisms that are very easy to exploit and work generally against a wide uh, class of in- uh, different algorithms. The first one is extract key from key. And basically what that does is... You know, uh, an AES-256 key is 32 bytes long, right? Because 32 bytes is 256 bits. Um, Well, if you use extract key from key, you basically just pick a certain subset of that key and use that as the next key. You know, like, I'm going to take the middle four bytes of that key and use that as the next key. Uh, So not a very good way to do it. And then the second one is Zor base and data, which basically involves taking the original encryption key, some other data, and mixing them together with the exclusive or uh, command, which, if done twice, results back in the original information. So uh, extract key from key is defined in section 6.27.7 of the PKCS number 11 standard, version (laughs) 2.30. But it may as well be renamed the extract substring because it's literally just grabbing some part of the original key with no modification at all. Uh, you know, it's the standard substring thing you could do with strings in, in any programming language. 
Uh, this derivation scheme creates a new key by taking a contiguous sequence of bits at desired offset and length from the original key. So if you have access to the HSM, you can create a new key in the HSM that's just some subpart of the original secret key. Right? So uh, the HSM doesn't let you get the original key, but allow you to create a new key that's just some part of the original key. In the example they use in this article, they said, all right, give me a new key of AS key number 47 or whatever uh, that is the first uh, two bytes. You know, start at the beginning and give me two bytes. So this will give us the two, first two bytes of the original AS key and make a new key out of it. Uh, and then they, you know, that gets saved as like key number 600 and something on the HSM. Uh, they then used the uh, SHA-256 HMAC uh, algorithm to encrypt a plain text that they chose with this new key, which is only two bytes long, uh, and so that's only 16-bit encryption. That's not very strong, right? Uh, and so they just took the HMAC, knew what the protocol was, and just brute-forced it until they got back those original two bytes. Okay. And now they know what the first two bytes of the original AES key are. Well, <laughs> repeat that for the, you know... Um, third and fourth byte, and mm-hmm. the fifth and sixth byte, and so on. And uh, after 16 rounds of doing this, you have all 32 bytes of the AES-256 key. Now, the AES-256 key, if you take the entire thing, is actually really hard to crack. But when you take it and use part of it in a, a SHA-256 HMAC that's not meant to be dealt with the same way, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the, a fraction of that key becomes really easy to do. Uh, because you're, you know, you're doing chosen plain text and a lot fewer things are happening, right? AES-256 HMAC isn't meant to be done with a short key like that. Uh, so this is surprisingly, this works not only against symmetric keys like AES, but even uh, generic HMAC secrets uh, work against uh, elliptic curve private keys like RSA, plain DSA, or Diffie-Hellman. Oh, uh were like RSA, but uh, DSA and Diffie-Hellman were not affected. Sorry. Mm, okay. Uh, but this is just an implementation quirk. These mechanisms are typically intended for symmetric keys only. For elliptic curve keys, the byte arrays uh, being truncated um, is the secret scalar part of the key. Right. For example, the secret component of a Bitcoin uh, elliptic curve DSA key uh, is a discrete logarithm of you know SCCP two fifty six K one. Um, which is a specific curve. Uh, initially, uh, that discrete logarithm is just stored as a 32-byte value of letters or whatever, right? and the extract key from key can be used to successfully reveal chunks of that at a time until you have the whole thing. Right. So, you know, if you have access to this HSM, you can actually slowly exfiltrate. Well, not actually, not that slowly. Exfiltrate the entire key of. AES keys or even RSA and, and elliptic curve keys. Wow. And that's only with the uh, extract key from key method. Now, if you do the Zor Basin data method, uh, it suffers a very similar problem. Mm. This operation derives a new key by Zoring user chosen data with the original secret key. Uh, while there are cryptographic attacks exploiting that against specific algorithms like uh, Triple Des, um, a design choice made by SafeNet leads to simpler key recovery attacks that work identically against any algorithm. Uh, when the size of data is less than the size of the key, uh, the result is truncated to the data size. So 
if I just inject a small amount of data and ask it to Zora with the secret of this AES 26 key, it only gives me the first couple bytes or wherever long my initial data was. So that makes it, you know, I can do a little bit at a time in order to brute force smaller chunks. Uh, say Zoring uh, 256-bit AES keys with one-byte data results in a one-byte output. Um, that provides another avenue for recovering a key incrementally. We derive a new HMAC key by Zoring with uh, successively longer sequences of zero bytes. Because if you Zor with zero, you get back the original key. Uh, with only the last segment of a new key left to brute force each with each step as we keep going. Uh, and so that's how you can get the keys out. So uh, say, regardless of which mode of authentication you use to log into the HSM, uh, there's both physical ones and they now have a cloud one where it's only like a username and password, which okay. is probably worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so regardless of how you log into the device, the client must have a logged in session with the HSM to use any of the existing keys. Right? Um, so in that case, it is enough then that an attacker who compromises any client machine that has access to the HSM is then able to extract the keys. You know, that might sound like a high barrier or even you know, tautological. Right? If your machine is compromised, then your keys are also compromised. Right? That's how it's always been. Uh, but protecting against that outcome is precisely the reason you have a cryptographic HSM in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? The whole point of an HSM is so that if that computer gets infected and somebody takes it over, all they can do is sign a couple of keys that we can revoke later because we have a log of everything they did. They're not supposed to be able to get the original, the secret key out of that and then go do whatever they want offline without any logs. Right? Uh, we offload key management to special purpose tamper-resistant HSMs because we do not trust our regular off-the-shelf PCs to sufficiently resist these attacks. The assumption is that even if the plain PC were compromised, attackers only have a limited window of using the HSM keys and only as long as they retain persistence on the box... Uh, that they've exploited, and that risks uh, them getting detected the longer they stay, right? Specifically, they cannot exfiltrate keys to continue using them after their access has been cut off. But if they can extract the key, then you've defeated the whole point of having the HSM in the first place. Yeah. Uh, That property both limits damage and gives defenders time to detect and respond, right? If all they can do is use the key, not actually steal the key, then with your audit logs, you'll be able to know exactly what certificates they issued and just revoke them and clean up, and it's no big deal. But if they can steal the key, mm. then that's the whole ballgame. Mm-hmm. You know, a key extraction vulnerability such as this breaks everything. Uh, with a vulnerable HSM, temporary control over a client or just their HSM credentials, if it's like the cloud one, allows permanent access to the key outside the HSM. Wow. Uh, in particular, this vulnerability applies to all symmetric keys along with elliptic curve private keys. Uh, there's one additional criteria required for exploitation, though. The key uh, you're trying to extract the private key from mm-hmm. must permit key derivation operations. So when you load a key into the HSM, the PKCS11 standard defines a set of Boolean attributes associated with stored objects that describe what you're allowed to do with them. Okay. In particular, there's CKA underscore derive that determines whether a key can be used for derivation, mm-hmm. and a meta attribute uh, CKA underscore modifiable that determines whether the other attributes, like derive, can be turned on and off or if they're fixed. Uh, accordingly, an object that has the CKA derive true or CKA modifiable true, which then allows them to change CKA derive, uh, 
allows arbitrarily right anything that has this derived flag set or the modifiable flag set so you can turn derive on is vulnerable uh, in particular a bunch of the um, you know when you ask the HSM to generate you a key a bunch of them just turn on all the flags on by default so that the key can do whatever you want it to do Whereas normally you don't want that, right? Right, to make or it like, flexible, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're generating a key for uh, doing Bitcoin or whatever, it only should have this one permission and none of the other ones. Yeah. It shouldn't have derived. But mm-hmm. if it does have, then somebody can extract the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, they say the latest firmware update from SafeNet addresses uh, the vulnerability by removing the weak key derivation schemes, like the extract key from key, uh, this is the most cautious approach. Uh, it is preferred to, uh, it's definitely preferable over incrementally tweaks such as attempting to set minimum key lengths uh, because those wouldn't be very effective because you could just do it with a longer key. It would take longer, but you could still do it. Uh, so instead, they basically removed the idea of, I'm going to make a key by just taking some bits from this other key because that's actually horrible. You shouldn't do that, right? If you want to derive a key from a key, you should use a key derivation function. You know, we have a bunch of really strong ones, like S-Crypt and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the other one? Like uh, PKDF or something like that? I forget what it's called. Yeah, anyway. I know what you mean, though. Yep. Uh, anyway, it's very interesting research, and they have a very, very detailed blog post broken yeah. up in two giant posts. Uh, if, you're definitely, if you're interested in this at all, you should definitely check it out. It's very nice. Wow. That's a big deal. Yep. That's a huge thing to break down, too. You've done a good yeah. job of actually listening uh, to all that. There was quite a lot of reading. Yeah. And sorry some of it was just trying to read back all of that. It research. is a massive, uh, but it's a lot of research to break down into digestible form. And uh, it is broken out in notes in the show notes. Right. I mean, uh, like I remember when we talked, what was it? I think Start SSL, the Israeli Certificate Authority, actually got hacked at one point. But because of their HSM, everything was fine. Right. Uh, it just one. goes to show that, you know, we have to... This is exactly the place where things like that um, uh, zero trust initiative that we talked about last week. Yeah. Where if I'm going to use your HSM, I want the source code so I can make sure the HSM I'm running, A, I can audit it and make sure it does what it says it does and doesn't have any obvious bugs. Naturally. But also I want to be sure that what you're telling me it does is actually what it does. Yeah. Yeah. Or what you think it does is actually what it does. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Alan, I'll tell you about something that does what they say they do. That's IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, and there you'll find the ultimate guide to buying a new source for a server for open source. I love this because if you've got a workload that's really important and you want to make sure that you're not going to have the hardware guys pointing fingers at the software guys, software pointing fingers at the hardware guys, and everybody putting their hands up in the air, go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and cut through all of that. End it. Yeah. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And Alan, uh, ix systems has, I like to always talk about the folks that work there because I think that's part of their, it's part of their secret recipe but we have a chance for people to actually meet them. One of the reasons we're pre-recording this week is because you're actually right now. Are you right now at VBSDCon? Just about, right? Um, looking at the it's day. A, yes. yes. Uh, no, sorry. This, this episode is the week after. Okay, just got back. Okay. It was last week. So VBSDCon yeah. going on September 11th through the 13th, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just like so many, like uh, they were just at uh, VMware World. They're at yep. the cons before that. They'll be at, uh, uh, two weeks from this episode, they'll be at EuroBSDCon in Sweden. Huh, uh-huh. So go over to IX Systems, take a look at them, go to our landing page, if you would, so that way we get credit to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, see why they have systems that are built around open source technology, and they can really build anything for you, uh, yes. whatever the software that's, solution that's is. That's the big thing, is, uh, you know, when you, when you contact them, you don't be like, oh, I want, you know, this process or whatever. It's like, all right, I need to build a machine that's going to be able to manage at least this many IOPS for my virtual machines 
uh, you know, I have this many virtual machines and I'm going to make sure each one can do at least this many IOPS. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, sure, you, I have a benchmark that shows this machine can do this many, but in a worst case, it needs to be able to do this level of performance. Yep. And that's where the difference is. I love is that. that, you know, it's not about what you can get under ideal conditions. It's what, what you're going to be able to guarantee to get all the time. Because if it goes lower than that, then your virtual machines aren't fast enough and everything grinds to a halt. Check them out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And say hi to them when you're at an yes. event. So, Alan, this next story, uh, what's this about Groupon and FreeBSD? Uh, a match made in heaven, perhaps? Infrastructure? Kind of. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, so, I, I didn't cover this story just because it's all about FreeBSD. <laughs> um, <laughs> Disclaimer. It's more because it actually uh, gets into what it takes to actually make a transition at a big company. To so a different company, system? Yeah. So, okay. like, currently we have all Linux, and uh, turns out we want FreeBSD for this thing. All right. How are we going to manage to convince all of our Linux employees to learn about FreeBSD and not just freak out? Yeah, right. So okay. On. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so, uh, this is a, an article from the FreeBSD Journal. Uh, they made this particular uh, article out of uh, this latest edition available free on the website. Cool. So, if you don't have a subscription, you could still read it. Uh, and see how great it is, and then go buy a subscription. <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, but anyway, uh, so it talks about Groupon uh, and how they switched to FreeBSD and why. Uh, one of the biggest things was they were moving away from using basically Fusion I/O or you know Flash on on uh, PCI Express type cards uh, to using SSDs for their database. But SSDs turn out have a fairly significant bit error rate, right? Where Every, you know, every so often, one of the bits is going to get flipped and you're going to get invalid data back. Well, in your e-commerce database, that's a big deal. Yeah. Because a flip bit could change the price of something at Groupon mm. and make it way low. Uh, and then, you know, the, your, the advertiser that paid you for, to set up all these coupons all of a sudden is, you know, out thousands of dollars or, or, you know, huge amounts of money. Or it makes it too high and all of a sudden this thing's expensive and it doesn't work. Or... You know, it decides that that user is now an employee, all right? And, you know, one bit can make a big difference, Wow! Right? <laughs> so then they're like, well, it seems like the only real solution to that is ZFS because ZFS means that we'll have a checksum, and if the data comes back wrong, we'll correct it from our... our uh, so they were on Linux with, we don't know what file system beforehand, but probably one uh, of well, the pathetic file systems that Linux has. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and they just... Uh, they looked at a couple things. Uh, obviously, D-Trace was a big one, too, for being able to figure out what was going on and why. Uh, and um, also just being able to roll a custom kernel very quickly and being able to use Pudrier to make their own sets of packages with their own settings very quickly uh, meant that, that, you know, especially they made these changes, like, right before Heartbleed. And then when, you know, there was, like, this rash of OpenSSL vulnerabilities and each time, they had the fix deployed on their entire architecture within 45 minutes. Whoa. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, that's, that's significant. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Sean Chittenden is an uh, architect at Groupon, and uh, he wrote the article for the FreeBSD Journal, and he kind of tells a story about how they dealt with switching, uh, and a little bit about why as well. Uh, as it turns out, if your organization is already supporting more than one flavor of Linux... Right, where you're already dealing with, you know, oh, the package manager is a little bit different, or you know, this config file is in a different place. Once you've already done that, adding FreeBSD as well is really not any more work than just any other distro, right? 
Mm-hmm. There are differences, and they're not all the same differences, but it's really the same amount of work as supporting you know, uh, Ubuntu and Red Hat at the same time. Uh, and of course, you know, Z- uh, FreeBSD brought with it, uh, you know, ZFS, Dtrace, uh, better firewalls, Poudreware, Package Manager, uh, more bundled build system, and so on. Uh, but you know, to say now one of the biggest items that no one misses and no one ever talks about anymore. Imagine having to run FSCK on a near line backup server with 288 terabytes of storage in it. Right. Yeah. It would literally take like weeks for the FSCK after a, a reboot or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas with ZFS, it's just like, nope, back online, done. <laughs> uh, but see, one of the challenges of organizational change is the personal anxiety from either learning something new or trusting something new in production. Okay. Right? So they had all these Linux sysadmins, and they're like, well, we don't know about BSD. And, you know, that's scary or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I feel like I might make a mistake or that I won't be able to relax at night because I'll have to make sure, uh, you know, I'll just read documentation on it to figure out what's going on. Uh, but also, yes, you know, learning to trust it in production when you're doing something new, you know. At, at first, ZFS seems really scary, and they start using it, and then you sleep at night, and then you're like, oh, I understand now. <laughs> Also recommends doing benchmarks and other high glitz testings to prove systems are not fragile. That's a good idea too. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you know it helps convince management when all of a sudden, oh, we need like thirty percent fewer machines now because of ZFS or whatever. But um, the way they dealt with this for like uh, database administrators, they did a bunch of like thirty-minute uh, video group chat sessions huh. uh, where they kind of just ease the database team into the different aspects of FreeBSD. Yeah, and obviously. Uh, using FreeBSD over going to something Solaris-like, like a Lumos to get ZFS, meant that top was still top, as opposed to on um, oh, yeah. on on Solaris, it's like PR stat. Uh, but then, you mean you can show people stuff on FreeBSD, like top minus MIO, which shows you top, but it's ranking the applications by how much IO they're doing. And you can like sort by read or write or whatever, and you can be like, oh, all that write bandwidth to the disk is coming from over here. That's nice. Or this application or whatever. That's key. That's and a then, key uh, information piece. Yeah. And then GSTAT for actually being able to break out the IOPS and megabytes per second going to each disk or even partition and so mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, just a bunch of these 30-minute things that mostly actually consist of a short demonstration followed by Q&A to let people ask their questions and get their anxieties out of the way. Uh, then they filled in the missing bits by hiring uh, external trainers like Drew Levine to come in for a week and just give all oh, their great. Linux sysadmins a crash course on these are the things you need to know to be able to walk around FreeBSD, right? Here's how to install a package and how to do something from ports and how to customize this and how to figure out what's going on over here and over there and so on. Uh, you know, but anyway, if you read the article, uh, the PDF there, it has... Uh, good coverage on uh, the steps you have to go through to actually uh, make a technical change like this stick from both you know, convincing management to let you try it, convincing the other tech team to adopt it and to, to that it's actually worth doing and getting all the buy-in that you need across the organization and just getting people over uh, the fear of the change and onto the excitement of all the new tools they have now. Mm, the things to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have done a lot of transitions um, you know, from DOS to Windows and from, and on the server side from Windows to Linux. And I did do a Linux to BSD, and that was, out of all of the transitions I've ever done, the easiest. And I think the big reason was is because you can have Bash on both, but also yep. because the Unix file permissions 
are the same. It's the same. And when you're lo- when you're moving large data sets between like DOS and Windows and Windows and Linux, like you always lose that. You end up having to script something to go through and reset all the permissions and ownership. But uh, under under FreeBSD and and Linux, my it's group IDs and user salt. IDs mapped up, and I just rsync the data over and never had to touch a thing. And that was whew, that was a, that was an easy transition. Let me tell you. So as a file server, it worked out great. All right, Alan, any other yeah. thoughts on that story? Uh, and there's a, a video linked at the bottom there from uh, the Bay Area uh, Lisa, or Large System Administrator Group. So it's a, like a user group, but for not a specific operating system, but just anybody that deals with any large systems. Okay. Uh, and uh, Sean gave uh, a talk version kind of of this article there about it as well. Nice, Alan. Very cool. I'll watch that video. I saw it linked in the show notes. I played just one mm-hmm. or two. Uh, yeah, I, I saw you show a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right, Mr. Jew, well, then let me tell you about our friends over at DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code, SNAPOcean, to support the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean is my go-to Linux infrastructure on demand. They have a very intuitive way to spin up a server, and you're not going to believe how fast you can get started. Less than 55 seconds, and the pricing plans start at only $5 a month. For $5, you'll get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And then they just very easily step up. Like, the next rig's $10 a month, and you just double all that stuff. Like, you get 30-gigabyte SSD, 2-gigabyte of transfer, 1-gigabyte of uh, of RAM. You know, like, it's just, boom, it just steps up, everything steps up. Uh, same, same with, like, the next price point, 20 bucks, everything steps up again. It's really, it's just very easy, very straightforward, and they have hourly pricing available. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London, so you can place them around. And they have a really, really brand new one in Germany with 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor. They're fast as SSDs yet, and it has a great position to get good, good distribution. And they wrap all of it up with a class, class, classy interface. I mean, this is the classiest interface out there. Mm-hmm. Very well done, very simple and intuitive, but extremely powerful with an API that takes it even further and really brings it up to the next level. Go over to DigitalOcean and try the promo code SNAPOcean. You plug that sucker in there and try it out for a little bit and see what we've been talking about. One of the things I love about uh, DigitalOcean is they went big on SSDs very early on. They have a very straightforward platform that makes a lot of sense, easy to one-click deploy applications, a bunch of really great open source utilities. Private networking is available between your droplets that don't count against your transfer rate. You can move your images around if you decide a better spot would be better or to even a different person. And their API is frequently updated. It looks really good. And some droplets even have IPv6 support. Pretty cool in the TechSnap audience. So go to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. And don't forget, they're all, they're willing to pay authors, too, for writing really good technical write-ups. Mm-hmm. So uh, something else to consider. You can look over on their community page for more information about that. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. Dun, dun, dun. The biggest thing for me is that each VM actually has a gigabit internet connection instead of only 100 megabits yeah, like buddy. you get elsewhere. Yeah, buddy. Talk about that. That's great. I know. Yeah. Uh, Alan, so normally this would be a point where I'd mention uh, the BSD program, but uh, I guess... Uh, you, you aren't able to see into the future. No, I'm not. I know we have one. For, we have a uh, checkpoint story we could get to, though. Are you ready to uh, jump sure. over to the checkpoint story? All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, the check checkpoint sandblast sandbox <laughs> sandblast sandbox yep. sp- spells rest in peace for ROP attacks. Hold on, let me let me just look at this, Alan. The checkpoint sandblast sandbox spells RIP for ROP attacks. The only a network world uh, headline. I mean, that's that's a lot of acronym. But tell me what this is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Checkpoint uh, has the sandboxing software, and they're extending it by using a feature available on the Haswell CPUs and above that Intel makes now. Okay. Um, so the new software monitors CPU activity, looking for anomalies that indicate that attackers are using sophisticated methods that would go unnoticed with traditional sandboxing techniques. 
Uh, so uh, ROP, or uh, return-oriented programming, is basically a way to um, get around things like ASLR that would normally, and uh, DEP, that would protect your machine from like buffer overflows and stuff. Uh, so yeah, so traditional sandboxes, including checkpoints, uh, the one that they've had before now, determine whether files are legitimate by opening them in a virtual environment to see what they do, uh, to, and, um, you know, and if they do something bad, then they won't let you run the file. Uh, to get past the sandboxes, attackers have started uh, devising evasion techniques, such as when you run the, the infected file or whatever, it just does nothing for the first hour or something. Or uh, it sets up so it drops a little marker and then doesn't do anything until you've rebooted once so that the, um, the sandbox won't notice what it's doing. Uh, but what Slamba uh, Sandblast does is sorts the evasion technique called uh, ROP, or Return-Oriented Programming, uh, which basically enables malicious uh, executable code on top of data files despite things like data execution prevention. Hmm. So normally, if um, there's some code stored in the data part of a file, mm -hmm. uh, data execution prevention, or NX, the, the CPU feature from Intel, yeah. will prevent that anything that marked as data can't be run as code. Okay. Right? So, you know, chunks of memory are blocked as, are written down as either code or as or as data, and you can't run data to prevent this kind of flaw. Uh and you know, uh data execution prevention is uh a widespread operating system feature that blocks uh you from executing that. Okay. Uh Rob does this by grabbing legitimate pieces of code called gadgets and uh, running them to force the file to create a new memory page somewhere where it can then inject its malicious shell code that can be uh, uploaded then and then gain execution. <clears throat> so basically, it uses uh, little bits of other programs that are around to cause a new chunk of memory to get set up and be marked for execution and then load the code into that. Hmm. Uh, this uh, process has the CPU responding to calls that return to addresses different from where they started. So normally, you know, a program will be running over here in memory, and then it'll jump way over here to use some gadget from somewhere else, and then it'll actually send it back up over here. Uh, so the Sandblast uh, thing detects that now by using the debugging features that are built into the Haswell CPU architecture. Cool. Uh, so Sandblast has a CPU-level detection engine that picks up on this anomaly and blocks the activity. The engine is available either on, uh, on an appliance that you can put in your own data center or uh, as a cloud service, uh, which runs on the Checkpoint cloud. Uh, and then, of course, their appliances have to be... Uh, you have to have an, a new enough appliance that has the Haswell CPU to be able to, to use this feature. Yes. So if you have an existing appliance, you might have to upgrade it. Yeah. Uh, this is, or you can just use the cloud one in order to avoid paying for any appliance. Anyway, uh, it's interesting to see this uh, new processor feature being used to detect attacks, mm. uh, but I also wonder if it could be used in other ways, right? If it can monitor how the things are jumping around in the processor, could you, you know, does that provide some kind of uh, side channel where I could detect when somebody's encrypting something or maybe even leak parts of the key and so on, right? Like we've seen that you can do that between VMs on a box, well, if the CPU is letting you get into a debug thing, I wonder if it can be used for malicious things as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe that'll be a story in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. Uh, separately, Checkpoint is also introducing a new feature called Threat Extraction, uh, which makes it safe to open documents quickly before they've been run through the sandbox. 
Hmm. Basically, it can convert uh, Word documents into PDF files hmm. or convert uh, existing PDFs into PDF files. Uh, and basically what it does is it cleanses out uh, over-featured file formats. So it removes macros and stuff from Word documents. It removes embedded JavaScript from PDFs. And basically it just dumbs it down to just a plain PDF with nothing else in it. Yeah, safe. Uh, yeah, so that while you're waiting for that Word document you just got sent to be run through the sandbox and make sure it doesn't do anything bad, you can get a PDF where you can actually just look at a picture of it. I was wondering if you could just do it as a JPEG even. Yeah, take a shot uh, of it and then... But obviously, a, a PDF scales better for large, like a multi-page Word document as a JPEG would just be horrible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, basically, they have a, a, a way to sanitize these files down to like a lowest common feature, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense. It's mm-hmm. something we should have, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, um, there's more details about it in the story if you're interested, but it's definitely interesting to see uh, the CPU being used to kind of basically go around the operating system uh, to detect some kinds of attacks. Yeah, really. And also makes it operating system agnostic, obviously, as well, mm-hmm. which is neat. Uh, Alan, any other thoughts on that? Uh, no, that's it for that one. Those CPUs are getting more and more sophisticated. It's pretty neat. I'll tell you about Ting. Go to Ting right now, won't you? And check them out. TechSnap.ting.com, sponsor of the TechSnap program, my mobile service provider for well over two years now. And I'll tell you why. I only pay for what I use, and because I'm Wi-Fi savvy, that means I pay a ridiculously low amount. I mean, it's ridiculous. I have like three lines, and often my bill doesn't crack 35 bucks. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's, you know, I think right now, I think this week, this, or, well, I checked it earlier this week, I think it was like around 37 bucks. It's, it's incredible. It's only $6 for the line plus local taxes, and then you just pay for your usage. There's no contract and no early termination fee. Go to techsnap.ting.com. For a limited time, we have a $50 promo. It'll give you $50 off your first device, or if you're going to bring a Ting-compatible device, and they have a big GSM and CDMA network, so you might, well, then they give you $50 in service credit. I got $25 in service credit when I signed up, and that more than paid for my first month. So you might find that it's a very, very good value. You can find out by going to techsnap.ting.com and clicking on that savings calculator. I would also recommend, perhaps, take advantage of our discount and get the Netgear Zing. Now, I think right now the Ting site is displaying the $25 discount, but uh, the promo code should get you $50. And uh, you can always always double-check with their support, but uh, I don't know. Go over there right now and find out. You can check on your because by the time we're by the time you're watching this, it's probably already updated since this is a week later. TechSnap.ting.com. The reason why I suggest that is I love this Netgear Zing. This mm-hmm. is a Wi-Fi hotspot with an OLED, OLED screen on there that gives you uh, your your battery information, your signal information, their settings, all right there on a the touchscreen. No contract, and you only pay for what you use. So you just need it from time to time. You turn it on, and you pay for it when you use it. And if you go to TechSnap.ting.com, they'll take fifty dollars off the price of that Zing, and then this is a six dollar hotspot. In your pocket. That's an incredible deal. They've also got devices under 50 bucks. Go to techsnap.ting.com and check them out. Also, while you're on their blog, if you're a cord cutter or thinking about cutting the cord, well, Ting has a post about that and uh, why they even care about that. You can find out more at techsnap.ting.com. A big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You know, I'm going to be hitting the road, uh, I think, uh, just after this episode airs, and uh, I'll be loaded up with Ting MiFi devices to make the connectivity happen. So... I'll be putting my money where my mouth is for that road trip. 
And speaking of the road trip, uh, if you'd like to kick in and uh, also follow my progress, patreon.com slash today. I just posted a video up there um, yesterday, but of course, this is a video recording ahead of time. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, this is something that I posted exclusive for our patrons, and it's just an update on the things before I hit the road and some of the gear and some of the repairs being done. And I'm making available to those of us who who support the network over at patreon.com. Slash today. You can become a patron and uh, your support is appreciated. Alan, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at jubitabroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB site or even better, start a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from Martin, and uh, he's just reminding us about the Let's Encrypt launch in Q4 2015. He says, Let's Encrypt is a free, automated, and open certificate authority run for the public's benefit. Let's Encrypt is a service provided by the Internet Security Research Group at letsencrypt.org. We haven't talked about this for a while, Alan. What are your thoughts about Yeah, since it was originally announced. Um, well, I don't know if they really answered any of the questions we had the first time around. <laughs> yeah, We get a lot of emails um, about it. <laughs> yeah, and yes, it's an interesting idea, but... Basically, we'll have to wait and see once it actually launches how well executed it is. Are you concerned that making it too easy is a bad thing? Um, maybe a little bit, but I guess not really. Okay. It's not that hard to get an SSL certificate now. It's like 5 or $10 and an email. Uh, so if I don't have to pay money anymore, I suppose that's useful. Yeah, yeah. And I think some, I think like some distros are going to build it in like at a package level so you can install... A Let's Encrypt package. Well, and- basically, if we get rid of self-signed certificates for all the, you know, it's not important enough by replacing with Let's Encrypt certificates, it seems like a win to me. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, the bigger question is, you know, how are they dealing with revocation? You know, I know uh, mm. Start mm. SSL or whatever that, that had the, uh, they gave away free certificates. Uh, they were free, but if you wanted to revoke them, that cost money because mm. it's an, a bunch of extra work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, right, and, I remember that. you know, how's Let's Encrypt going to deal with that? Yeah. That always is the piece. All right. Then our, la- our last and next piece of feedback comes in from uh, El Carbon Del Patron. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I have to thank you both for my little adventure in FreeNAS. Because of your show, I bought hardware and started a FreeNAS box here at my home. I'm using four 3-terabyte RAID Z2, and I can upgrade to 16 hard drives. I'll probably buy a new disk as soon as my pool gets to about 75%, plus or minus. You probably want to buy a little sooner than that, just FYI. Yes, Trust me. I'm also thinking to add a free NAS box to my company also, and I need to get someone to do that since I have no more free time. Uh, and I'm not the IT guy. But here's the things I'd like to know. I'm thinking about making all my employees use GPG to sign their emails. But for most of them, using a password every time Thunderbird sends an email is very annoying. I tested with a few of them, but they're always complaining because Thunderbird asks for a passphrase every time they send an email. I was thinking since the GPG key is only for company email and the company computer, I could create all GPG keys in my computer, export each user secret key to a file for each computer, configure, and then configure. But I was thinking for now only to sign emails, at least just signing emails. Since I import myself each secret key to the public key for all of the people and each computer has as a Windows 7 and login password, can I place a GPG key in Thunderbird with their secret key and Thunderbird automatically then signs emails from that computer and client? That way people don't have to type any more passwords into that box and as each would then be sending a signed email to colleagues and con- uh, customers. Can you help with this? And thanks for the great show. Okay. Uh, if you're using Enigmail, the plugin for Thunderbird, uh, there's a setting 
uh, where it's, the default is remember passphrase for 10 minutes of idle time, you could just change that to 9999, and then you would only ever have to enter the password once a day, I guess. You know, it depends if you actually restart Thunderbird or not. But in general, you can be, only have to enter it once per session, and then that will be a lot less annoying than having to type it every time. Mm-hmm. you got to use a uh, mail. Yeah. Um, but you, there's other ways to use, there's things called GBG agents that will manage your keys for you. Oh, yeah. And you can do things where, I don't know if you can have one without a password or not. Uh, but if you configure one without a password, then that should work too, I suppose. Mm. And then, uh, um, oh, cool. But yeah, I like an Enigmail. I find sometimes I use it, just the key management interface in it is really nice, and mm-hmm. I use it just for dealing with all of my GPG keys, mm-hmm. even if they have nothing to do with, uh, if I'm not using them for email necessarily even. Yeah, Rikai points on the chat room, that would be just under a week if he set it to 9999. Uh, so there you go. Hey, he had a couple yeah. of other call-up kind of semi-questions. He said, I've had a kind mm-hmm. of a hard time with Freenas. I've gotten SIFS shares and uh, Plex for my little girl's photos and videos, but I can't set up an NFS share and I cannot set up an own cloud server yet. What? what? Like setting up an F- NFS share is the checking same a as a SIFS except for checking a box. I bet what it is is more on the client connection side. He's having a hard time. Maybe. Uh, and then own cloud... So I don't know if you're trying to do it manually or what, but yeah, there's there's like a plugin package where you just it's like two clicks or whatever, and you get a known cloud. Uh, whereas if you're trying to set up manually, yeah, it's a lot of work. And and you know, he mentions yeah. Yeah. I know how to do it on like Debian and Arch, and like well, but that's not how you do it, on doing it yourself on Freenas. You just get the the plugin, yeah. and it's you done. don't go rooting around in the under- yeah. underline. It, it, you install own cloud just like you install Plex, probably right. You just mm-hmm. click click, and it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, FreeNAS is meant to be an appliance. You're not meant to dig into it yourself. If you want to do that, then get a regular FreeBSD box and set it up. But it doesn't sound like you're actually interested in that. So, yeah, there's mm-hmm. a plug-in. It works great. Yeah. And there you go. That's our email for this says, week. He says he has more questions, but he'll save them from later. Well, uh, please write them out, please, because uh, nobody else is bothering. So <laughs> <laughs> Email them to techsnap.com. Use the contact form at the contact page. Or, like you did, the subreddit's great, too, techsnap.reddit. Com. Thank you for sending that in. That's a good question. Send and questions, please. And we uh, we congratulate you. Begging for, you for questions. Yes, you sir, you won the special cookie prize this week. All right, now with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Another round for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. Some of these links came from our absolutely incredible and passionate subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story is kind of a funny one. It's from a hack fest and a new compression algorithm that came out of it, right, Owen? Yes. Well, the most interesting thing is that the idea came from the TV show. Oh, uh, okay. I think it was uh, Silicon Valley, the Amazon TV yeah, show. Yeah, yep. And, and they paid a real uh, mathematician or something to come up with a fake compression algorithm for the TV show. <laughs> uh, well, a group of 10 engineers at Dropbox at a Hackfest uh, implemented something based on the general idea of that and have actually made something useful. That's neat. Uh, so they've released uh, Lossless H.264, uh, which is a codec that can compress uh, videos or even JPEG images losslessly, meaning you get back the original quality that you put in. What? Uh, so this can result in a 22% reduction in the file size of JPEG images without any noticeable uh, loss in image quality. That's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, especially with H.264 videos. Yeah. All of a sudden, you could, you could, you know, if you have a target size for an episode of TechSnap, all of a sudden you could get more quality in that same file size. That's awesome. Or the same existing quality in a smaller file size. Oh, I love it. 
That's a huge deal and from a Hackfest. Really cool. I wonder if we'll actually yep. see that in, uh, in production. Ah, best thing, it's also BSD licensed and it's on GitHub. Oh, then we just might, actually. All right, how about this one? Comes from Tector. China is forcing developers of the Great Wall to cir- uh, uh, Great Wall circumvention tools to delete their software. So they're tracking these guys down, going after them, like uh, the maintainer of in- Go Agent. Yeah, so they're actually like, you know, busting into their house and threatening them and things, right? Wow. To, for making software. How about that? That yep. avoids... But you know, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm really confused about this because then I hear like there's hotels and they advertise that they, they have the VPNs, like when you go to the hotel, like they, they have a hotel-wide VPN so that way you can bypass the Great Wall of China as a Western right. tourist. Just, well, those are A, usually more in tourist areas. The, the Chinese government doesn't care if tourists do it. Right, they only care about the citizens. I guess doing so. It. Yeah. Uh, also, I think that hotel might have been in Hong Kong, and there's a reason why China calls Hong Kong the special administrative region. Yeah, I think it was because it's it? yeah because it's it's the part of China where the Chinese rules don't apply. All right, so this city-run ISP makes 10 gigabits available to all residents and businesses. And an unrelated story: Chris is moving to Salisbury right now. Because <laughs> what the hell? 10 gigs? Yes, please. Yeah, that's a little extreme. Uh, so, uh, Fibrant uh, is what it's called. Uh, so, the city started it five years ago when they realized that AT&T and Comcast or, or Time Warner or whatever the local one was, uh, were not going to invest in the infrastructure for the city, and the city wanted to attract more businesses and residents and so on. Uh, so, five years ago, they started building this, and uh, recently, they underwent a project since uh, once you run the fiber, the fiber is fine. They just had to upgrade the devices at either end to support 10 gigabit. Yeah. And so they've made the changes. And uh, currently, they're using point-to-point technology. So uh, if you have one of these connections, you just have a direct link point from there back to the thing. Uh, but they're looking at uh, switching to this other company who has a thing that allows a more of a shared network stuff so they won't have to run as much fiber. Yeah, or, so or this is... Less setup and so on. Woo! But in general, so uh, they have a 10 gigabit uh, connection, but it's $400 a month. Mm, okay. uh, now, they specifically say, you know, we're not expecting most people to get this for the house. This is for businesses. Uh, for your house, they have 50 by 50 for $45, uh, which is a lot of upstream no for No kidding. Home. No kidding. Take that. Now, honestly, I, I'd probably rather have like, I don't know, 75 by 25 even. Uh, but, you know, fiber is fiber, so symmetric is fine. Uh, the bigger question is, does the municipality actually have enough bandwidth to serve a bunch of people trying to actually do 10 gigs? They actually jumped on there. Yeah, yeah it's know. like, um, I'm opening a data center in somebody's basement in North Carolina. Can I get the 10 gigabits for 400 bucks? Because, you know, one gigabit cost me more than that. And that's at, you know, wholesale prices. Mm-hmm. Jeez, 10 gigabits. Uh, I'm sure they have some fair access, fair use policies and so on. But uh, anyway, it's... Interesting to see, uh, and they're not the first place to do it. Uh, there was one in Vermont, apparently, that's had 10 gigabits since July. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but, you know, 10 gigabits kind of excessive. Uh, mm, I can use not that. a problem. Exactly. Uh, well, the problem is if you're actually trying to use it, then the whole price structure breaks down. I'd have to upgrade my uh, whole LAN. Well, I- yeah, there's that. Uh, but the, the bigger problem is that, you know, they don't actually have the backhaul to support right, 10 right. gigabits. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they have enough to support one person actually using all 10 gigabits. <laughs> yeah. But if, if five or six of them tried to do it once, it would be kind of right. problematic. Yeah. But even then, you know, Maybe you uh, still it's get... probably a lot better than what you're getting from the current yes, cable exactly. company. You're still so. getting, yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. You uh, know, sadly, in the meantime, since five years ago when this started, North Carolina passed a law stopping municipalities from being able to do this. Hmm. Although that law is currently being challenged in court and hopefully will be struck down. Good, good. 
You're going to also need to upgrade your Wi-Fi router, and the FCC has something to say about that. There's this uh, proposal going through called the Equipment Authorization and Electronic Labeling for Wireless Devices. And so that brings us to LibrarePlanet.org, who is doing a Save the Wi-Fi campaign. They say right now the FCC is considering a proposal to require manufacturers to lock down computing devices, routers, PCs, and phones, to prevent modification if they have a modular wireless radio in them or a device with an electronic label. The rules would likely restrict installation of alternative operating systems on PCs, prevent research to advanced wireless technologies like mesh networking, ban installation of custom firmware on your Android device, discourage the development of alternative and free open-source Wi-Fi firmwares like OpenWRT, infringe upon the ability of amateur radio operators to create high-powered mesh networks to assist in emergency personnel in a disaster, and prevent resellers from installing firmware on routers such as those for retail Wi-Fi hotspots or VPNs without agreeing to pay additional uh, without agreeing to any conditioner manufacturer consensus or, cho- or chooses choices. Uh, so they say uh, the FCC is asking for comments on the proposal right now. And so the uh, comment deadline is extended to October 9th, and they have extra- instructions. It's a three-step instruction program on what to do if you want to make a comment on this proposal. Yeah, and I definitely think people should. Uh, you know, we have the same problem with, like, software-defined radios and stuff. Um, and it really causes a problem with open source for two reasons. Even if a, a vendor is going to do something... Uh, you know, they're using a version of Linux or whatever, they have to get it certified by the FCC, and they would have to get it recertified if they make any changes at all. And that process costs like two hundred dollars or $400,000. Uh, and that's why we see a bunch of routers with really old versions of Linux on them, because that one's already been certified and they can't touch it mm-hmm. without having to spend all this money over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the current situation is bad enough. The new yes. ones would just be like, no more open WRT, yeah, no, no, no more install for FreeBSD on it. And it's just, you know... All of a sudden, the vendors who are already not necessarily playing nicely are going to have to actively interfere with you trying to do anything on yeah. your router. Yeah. And that's just horrible. And what a mess. What a stupid and thing to get people in trouble for. for it it's a dumb thing to get people in trouble for over, too, because they're just trying to yeah. make their own services better. Uh, let's talk about SOAP. Let's uh, talk about clean apl- application compartmentalization with SOAP. Uh, so this is a, a research paper uh, mostly out of the University of Cambridge about... Um, Better ways to compartmentalize applications with Capsicum. Hmm, very nice, sir. Very nice. Capsicum seems like very cool technology. Yes. Uh, I, you hear about this, I don't know, uh, the Daily Mail is calling it a scandal. Wiki, Wikipedia blackmail scandal. The website discovers that scammers are, being, are charging businesses and celebrities to protect their profiles from fake charges. Like, you know, like, a, hey, you want me to protect your Wikipedia profile? Just pay me some money. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, nice reputation you have there. Be shame if something happened to it. Yeah, uh, it's funny that a tabloid-esque place would be covering this because they're one of the people you would expect to be doing it, right? Or they write the type of thing will will be the cited reference for something added to one of these Wikipedia pages. Uh, but I'm guessing it goes uh, kind of both ways. A, you know, pay us or we'll write bad things on your Wikipedia page. Uh, but also, you know, pay us and we'll auto revert any changes yeah. anybody else makes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yes, uh, something Wikipedia will have to deal with uh, with more policies. I think Marriott's probably in trouble if there is a subject on the InfoSec Handler's daily blog called Gift Card from Marriott. Uh, well, this one actually kind of spins out of control really quickly. So this is a regular phishing scam where they're you know claiming, oh, you get a free three-night stay at a Marriott, here's a gift card, <laughs> okay. click the link or whatever. Okay. Uh, and it takes you to like a survey with a domain uh, that's been faked, so... The domain is actually like luckysurvey.com dash blah, blah, blah dot review. One of the new TLDs, which is horrible. And the post goes on and on to complain about the, uh, the new moronic uh, money grab that is the new TLDs. 
Uh, but then it actually gets to the uh, social survey, colon Marriott, right? And it's got this, you know, typical clip art of a customer service representative and talking about, you know, what you're going to, you could win a gift card for this, whatever. Mm-hmm. It starts asking you questions like, you know, are you male or female, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, when you select your rewards, nothing to do with uh, Marriott anymore. You can choose. Uh, wow. Yeah, Giga Globa weight loss pills, dick uh, pills, rock hard dick pills, or ripped muscle steroids. So Steroid. really, it's regular spam. Yep. Trying to sell you this crap. Yep. But disguised as a survey to get a free gift certificate from Marriott, it's like they're brand really jacking. kind of just yeah. But they kind of lost their way. Like, yeah, if it, at the end of the survey, it should ask you a bunch of stuff to get your personal information to. Make money off of it, right? Because that's what you'd expect at the end of the survey. It's like, oh, you've won. Yeah. Type in, give us all your personal details yeah. so we can send you your gift certificate. Yeah, we can scam you and, some more. But yeah, the, by the end, they, they forgot that it was supposed to be about Marriott. <laughs> yes. Yeah, really, they could have at least tried. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is better. I got one today, actually. Uh, this one was like an invoice. Where did it go here? One second, let me find. Ah, invoice uh, IMV-87163 from Western Digital Inc. for ScaleEngine.com. Uh, it's like, oh, right. Uh, I did just RMA some Western Digital drives that had failed, and they were expensive or whatever. Uh, it's like, here's invoice uh, 871 blah, blah, for so many dollars. The amount outstanding blah is due by September 3rd, 2015, which is today when I get the email. But anyway, yeah. uh, please make payment <laughs> to the following account using your account number or invoice number as a reference as we no longer accept checks. Uh, federal uh, wire routing number, blah, account number, blah, so on. If you have any questions, please let us know. Many thanks. Cavity Dental Staff Agency Limited. What? Oh. <laughs> they, they had me going right up to the end where they used they the wrong it. company name. They lose it. It's just a small detail. But on, on top of the fact that the... Uh, Invoice attachment was a .zip instead of a PDF or something, mm. uh, and it was uh, post zero spelled with an X dot com. <laughs> weird, but yeah, super weird. Um, uh, so, so uh, a fairly convincing uh, scheme right up until the end where they blew it. Yeah, that's true. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about ad networks. This is something we've we've touched on quite a bit, and the register is saying that there's booming there. It's becoming a booming attack vector, and Google and Yahoo are just kind of looking away. Looking away. Something you've kind of harped on for a while, Alan, is these, these uh, ad networks. And they have a six-page write-up on it over at the register. And they write down, they go down like some of the most recent ones. Like they say, this year it's increased more than 260% over the previous year with some more than 450,000 malicious ads reported in the first six months alone of this year. That's according to Risk IQ. Uh, but they also talked about, you know, part of the problem is actually tracking it down. Because ads are so personalized and targeted now, uh, you know, if somebody uploads an ad, only very certain people are going to end up seeing that ad. And then it'll be on, only on certain sites and so on. And so it's very hard to track back which ads were actually the one causing the problem. Yeah. Because, you know, it ends up that the people who got infected didn't all visit any of the same websites. Right. And so on. So it makes it very hard to figure out which ad network, let alone which ad. And then also the other problem is that you have these like reselling of ads. So. The bad guys upload the ad to some small ad network, which then goes and resells the ad into the Google or Yahoo network. And, and you know, you can have multiple levels of this reselling going on to the point where there's like four levels away of the person that actually uploaded the uh, malware to actually where it got published. Right. <laughs> That's kind of a mess. 
but yes, uh, if you're interested at all in that, it's a good feature. This yeah. plus Google, uh, the ep- uh, they're updating Chrome to automatically pause Flash ads and mm-hmm. Apple mm-hmm. rolling out ad blocking in iOS 9 by default. Online advertising display ads are going to be having a shakeup mm-hmm. for a little while. Uh, yeah. Hey, we have a review of uh, OpenSSL security, sort of like a look back. Yes, so uh, the people that, that maintain OpenSSL have done a blog post. Uh, it's interesting, the OpenSSL website actually has a blog now. Uh, yeah, that is Up nice. until uh, a couple months ago, it still looked like the uh, typical 1990s yeah, uh, open source website. If you go back and look in previous now. episodes of TechSnap, we have screenshots yeah. of it from our coverage it, back then. It, 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 was, it had the same web design it had since like, the 90s. <laughs> Uh, but over the last 10 years, OpenSSL has published 100 vulnerabilities. But uh, the important thing here is a graph they have near the end. Uh, and you can see that starting uh, partway through 2014, uh, they started classifying vulnerabilities as high, mm. uh, low, or moderate. I'm not sure why they ordered them like Anyway, uh, in this graph, they show how long it took between when they announced it and when they, had a fix, or when they found out about it and when they had a fix out for it. Uh, and so a shorter stack on the graph is better. And then you can see all the red ones were under the 30-day mark. Uh, their average was about 42 days. Uh, and uh, you know, they managed to get most of them out before the, uh, the recommended 60 days by the, I think it was uh, CERT or somebody that recommends that. Uh, and that they never exceeded the 90 days, uh, which is the maximum. Very so nice to see them get, doing this. Yeah. Hmm. And hopefully we can out. see them... Uh, Trend that average down closer to the, the yeah. 30 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, so uh, it's Google's Project Zero that has the 90-day baseline. Mm. Uh, and CERT recommends 45-day. Uh, after 45 days, that the disclosure comes out. Uh, and Project Zero says if the vendor's working with them, they're willing to wait up to 90 days. I am, uh, I am sensing a theme between last week's last roundup story and this week's last roundup story. Yes. Alan, <laughs> tell us about it. Uh, so this one is a search of uh, GitHub. Yeah for uh, basically looking for any file called wp-config, which yep. is a config file for WordPress, yep. and specifically the line that defines the database name. Uh, and so this one, you can see, oh, there's a data. Oh, that one's just my password. That yeah, there's the root user. But a whole bunch of them, yeah. Oh, yeah. Change me. Change me. <laughs> oh, but there's one, yep. Somebody's PHP. Uh, yep. Somebody has a database where you can log in as PHP app. And the user's uh, password And is... the password is just right there. Yep. Almost, it's all hexadecimal. Even it's, not, it's look at this one. Uh, the uh, user's root, so they're using the root user on the database for their WordPress database. It's nice bad. and good. Yep. Nice and good. Nice and secure. <laughs> yep. DB password, WordPress. DB user, WordPress. DB name, WordPress. <laughs> not good, people. Ooh, DB name test. DB user root. Well, I, here, here's one where the passwords uh, all like Chinese characters. Ooh, nice. Customer admin password ah. is replace. Yep. Here's one from. Uh, Hidebrute.org, uh, and the password is tilde open square bracket bhb uh, open curly bracket open round bracket sjyac. Wow, and so on. Here's the one. Really called, horrible. Here's ones. one on. Uh, here's here's one on the Docker projects uh, <laughs> GitHub page for uh, open stack dash heat dash Docker. Yeah, that one uses an environment variable to pass a password instead of storing it yeah. in the big file. Yeah, but they're using the root user for the database access. Yep. <laughs> Way to go, well, Docker doc- folks. Well, well Docker uh, pipes curl into sudo, so <laughs> mm. what do you expect from what else, that? Yeah, what else do you expect? Yeah, what else? That's a good one, Alan. I like Here's that. Here's one. Uh, MySQL mover, database password 12345. <laughs> good one. 
That's a good one. The Cats Pacer Crackers Pass. will never get that. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. This is good. good terrible ones. Uh, another story, uh, related story that I didn't get was uh, if your Amazon keys happen to leak into GitHub, even if you delete them, your Amazon instance is likely to be compromised within 20 minutes. <laughs> Right. Somebody's just hooked up to the fire hose and just waiting. As soon as they see keys, they jump on it. That's yeah. I guess right? free computers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Free, yeah. You get a free computer. You just have to watch for somebody to make a mistake on GitHub. Why wouldn't you? I suppose if you want one. Uh, all right, that brings us to the end of this show. If you'd like to submit a story or a topic, techsnap.reddit.com is where to go. Some feedback, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use the contact form. We would very much like to hear from you and get your questions into the show. If you'd like to watch us live, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. You'll get our live times automatically converted to your local time zone using the magic of JavaScript, monkeys, and a little bit of love. And then last but not least, don't forget the RSS feeds are available for this show, so you just get it automatically when we release. And you don't have to worry about live or calendars or pre record or nothing just get this show every single week automatically you can find links to the rss feeds in the show notes as well as links to everything alan's talked about copious notes all that good stuff just go look for episode 232 of the TechSnap program posted at jupiterbroadcasting.com all right that right there alan brings us to the end of a double marathon recording session i hope you have a great trip i'm sure by the time by the time people are watching this we'll already know you've had a great trip thank you everybody for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week 